book of Joshua is asking a, a really important question. What do we do when those who lead us no longer can? What do we do in those moments, in those times, in those seasons? Joshua answers this question resoundingly. In Joshua chapter 1, be strong and courageous. Why? Because God, because God will do the work. Joshua, titled after Moses' successor as the leader of Israel, isn't who the book is really about, though he is integral to its story. It's about a God who keeps his promises, who has the power and the character to do everything he says. It's about a God who calls his people to look to him for help and to look to his word in obedience for direction. Now, what Joshua makes clear is that our leaders do matter. This is why Joshua is chosen. He is a leader who obeys and trusts in the Lord. This is proven in the past as you read the Old Testament and the Pentateuch. And it's also proven as we've walked through Joshua and seen his obedience in the Lord. Joshua would model and point God's people back to him, and they would follow his lead. This book is an unfolding of God's promises and an unfolding of Israel's obedience and what happens when they don't. They finally enter into the promised land. Then, by God's power and faithfulness, they receive the land. Remember in Joshua chapters uh, 13 through 21, they are allotted, the, the divine allotment, the giving of the lands to each of the tribes. And so they have found their home. They're here. And we see that in Joshua chapter 21, God is more for them, that he would look for them to live in the land a particular way, to worship him correctly, to be a place where justice would thrive and mercy would be seen. These Last two chapters follow a similar theme as chapter 22, what we looked at last week in dealing with proper worship, that we are meant to worship God the right way. And when we don't, there are severe consequences. Chapters 23 and 24 have Joshua giving his final words as Israel's leader, an exhortation, a reminder, a renewal of saying, what got us here will keep us here. He will first call Israel's leaders before addressing all of Israel. Again, all for the hope of calling them that day, this day, to serve God and serve God alone. So let's look at chapter 23 and Joshua's final charge to Israel's leaders. Look at verse 1 with me again. A long time afterward, when the Lord had given rest to Israel from all their surrounding enemies, Joshua was old and well advanced in years. Joshua summoned all Israel, its elders and heads, judges and officers, and said to them, I am now old and well advanced in years. And so we've clearly reached the end of Joshua's life. He says so just as much in verse 14, where he talks about going the way of all the earth. But before he does, he has some final words for Israel's leaders. Maybe you've had in your own life a, a grandparent or uh, someone who would pull you aside and share some of their own experience and wisdom with you. Stories from their life. Times where they had to learn from their mistakes or simply things they learned from those before them who gave them wisdom. Or maybe you've had a mentor do this for you. And that's what Joshua is doing here. 
He's pulling Israel's leaders. He knows they have a really important, weighty responsibility that he won't be able to be there for them any longer. And so he has some wisdom, some truth to give them. He wants to point them in the way that will keep them going towards God. In verse 3, Joshua reminds the leaders of Israel that they have seen God at work, that he removed the nations who lived in the area before. He fought for Israel. He fought on their behalf. Joshua himself, in verse 4, speaks of his own obedience to God's divine allotment, the giving of the promised land. And that though there are still nations remaining, Joshua promises, as God has already promised, that they will be driven out and given to Israel. Therefore, look at verse 6, in light of that, be very strong to keep and to do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, turning aside from it neither to the right hand nor the left. And then further in verse 11, he says, be very careful, therefore, to love the Lord your God. And practically, what does that look like for Israel's leaders? Verse 7, don't mix with the nations remaining among you. Don't make mention of their gods or swear by them, or serve them, or bow down to them. Instead, cling to the Lord your God, just as you have done to this day. What is Joshua trying to say? He's saying that the past points them to their future response. That God's past faithfulness points to their future obedience so that they can enjoy present rest, present abundance, present joy. And if Israel's leaders chose, choose to go in another direction, verses 12 through 16 make very clear that just as all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you have been fulfilled for you, so the Lord will bring upon you all the evil things until he has destroyed you from off this good land that the Lord your God has given you. And so the stakes are pretty high. It's why Joshua's urging Israel's leaders to be very careful. They have received a weighty work, one that could determine Israel's life in the promised land, whether they will enjoy it or be removed from it. And Joshua isn't speaking out of nowhere. He is seeing firsthand what it means to go against God to choose a different direction. He spent 40 years of his life wandering the wilderness because of disobedience to God. Joshua would know what it meant for a leader to stop trusting in the Lord. Moses would die before going to the promised land. Joshua would watch his leader die because of lack of faithfulness in an area to the Lord. Joshua speaks from personal experience. He himself neglected to go to the Lord in prayer, and Israel would deal with the consequences of the Gibeonites because of it. He knows that it will only be in a desperate clinging of God that will allow them to continue to enjoy God's abundance in the promised land. And so he's calling Israel, hey, look to God, be faithful to him so that you can faithfully point Israel to him. And so even in verse 16, he reminds Israel's leaders that to worship other gods 
were to be inviting the anger of the Lord, that it will be kindled against them, that they will perish quickly from off the good land that God has given them. It's as if Joshua is saying, don't forget what God has given us, he can also take from us if we do not trust him and look to follow him with our whole lives. Israel's leaders need to hear the call, put me first, that you can lead well and enjoy my gift to you. In chapter 23, we've seen here, but also in all of Joshua, the importance of faithful leadership. Joshua first speaks to Israel's leaders because he knows that they will set the tone and the temperature for the rest of God's people. Meaning if they are clinging to God with desperation, then the people have a model and example of what that means and looks like. And if they don't model faithfulness in serving God with their whole life, if they don't keep God as their one and only, well, then Israel has no reason to do so. If their leaders don't follow God, why would they? How can we expect the people to follow God if Israel's judges and elders and officers have little to do with that? And we know that Joshua is right in warning them of this. If you read just the next book of the Bible and Judges, you, you see this. That as the judges point the people to God, they follow. But when they go, the people go back to their old ways. A little further in First and Second Kings, and you see this is all over. Most of the kings were pretty awful. And you see that in the few times you have kings like Josiah who are faithful to love the Lord, the people follow. When the kings who invite other gods and worship of other deities lead, the people follow and invite the anger of God. Leadership matters, and so that's why Joshua begins here. Paul would exhort his disciple and pastor, Timothy, watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them, because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. He's saying, Timothy, make sure your faithfulness to God with your be faithful to God with your life, be holy, love Jesus, obey his commandments, and understand his word rightly because in doing that, you'll save yourself and also those who are following your example. Paul is making a direct connection to a leader's faithfulness to God in their own life, in doctrine, and the salvation of those under them. That there is something important about a leader being true to the Lord, being faithful in their walk. And this is heavy. It's why James will say, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers. For you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. It's also why godly character is vital to strong leadership and health in a church. Leaders need to love God in order to love God's people well. In chapter 24, the, the scene changes. We read in verse 1 that Joshua now gathers all the tribes of Israel to Shechem and summons the elders, the heads, the judges, and the officers of Israel. And they presented themselves before God. Now instead of just addressing Israel's leaders, all of Israel is called. And he will address the whole nation 
one last time. Many of us have been to weddings, right? Probably more than one. And maybe even this year you've been to a couple or a few or you have some coming up. But less of us have probably been to a wedding vow renewal. These were made more popular in the U.S. in the 1970s, and they can happen for lots of reasons, right? Maybe when you were younger, you weren't able to have the wedding you really wanted, and so now later in life, you're making that happen. Uh, Maybe you're just looking to celebrate a very significant milestone. A few years ago, I got to um, the church I used to be at. uh, Two, a brother and a sister, Jeff and Jane, were celebrating 50 years, and so they had a, a, a vow renewal that we got to join them in. Right? And so this was a moment, a celebration of what the Lord had done, his faithfulness, and wanting to just renew that and promise again, we are going to, for the next, however the Lord allows us to walk together, be faithful to each other. It's a reminder of the commitment you hold and an exhortation to continue in that commitment to one another. Chapter 24 is today's renewal service, and Joshua is officiating Israel's recommitment to Yahweh, their God. (coughs) Now, chapter 24 is going to read very similarly to chapter 23 and the things that Joshua says. And that should be unsurprising. What God asked for in his leaders is really what all his people should be. That's why when you read the qualifications for elders and deacons in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus uh, 1, you'll notice that none of the character qualifications, none of the things expected of leaders is that significant? Is that all surprising or different than really all the people, all believers should be? Right? All of us should be above reproach. All of us should be one spouse kind of people. All of us should be sober-minded. All of us should have self-control and be respectable, hospitable. We shouldn't be drunkards. We shouldn't be violent but gentle. All of us should not be quarrelsome or lovers of money. These are all things that all of us should be. All that's different is that leaders are called to exemplify that, to model that in a, in a truer way. But again, chapter 24 is a renewal, a renewal of God's covenant with his people. And interestingly, the structure of chapter 24 would be comparable with many ancient Near Eastern treaties, especially the Hittite treaties, of the second millennium uh, B.C. And so there's a standard outline that kind of comes out of this treaty. It's governed between kings who consider themselves either equal to one another or, in certain cases, an overlord and those underneath them, vassals. So every ceremony would include a particular set of elements. You'd have a preamble, which would identify the author of the covenant, It'd have a a prologue, which would describe the previous relationship between these two parties. Stipulations. And so the obligations of a a vassal, of those underneath, to the king, to the overlord. A deposit, a, a, a writing, a public reading. Witnesses. Normally, the, the gods are called to witness the covenant. And then finally, curses and blessings that the gods would punish or bless depending on whether or not the covenant is kept. And these same elements are found right in chapter 24. Right in verse 2, we have our introduction to the author of the covenant. The Lord, the God of Israel. 
God is the author. He is the originator of this relationship between Israel and himself. In verses 2 to 13, we see a historical prologue. We read of God's faithful work all throughout Israel's history, from Abraham until the present. Israel's past, as they hear this and as they come back to this, is meant to motivate them, remind them of what God has done so that they could be faithful to him in the future. That in God's grace, he has provided the land and all its riches. These verses, especially verse 13, describe the fulfillment of all of God's promises in the wealth and the blessing that Israel received freely from God. That Yahweh has been generous and a promise keeper. Stipulations are given too in verses 14 through 25. The relationship is defined in in laws that the, the people must obey. Verse 14, fear the Lord, serve him in sincerity and faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt. Serve the Lord. Choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your fathers that served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. A call to choose God, not tomorrow, not 10 years from now, is given. A call to choose God today. One that's not meant to be half-hearted. One that's meant to be whole and sincere. One that's meant to be proven out as day-to-day choosing God again and again, putting away the things that we once worshipped, putting away the things that we once held on to, putting away the things that we put before God and saying, I will choose you. Joshua would rebuke Israel in verse 19 after they would kind of give a, a commitment to the Lord. He would say, you are not able to serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after having done you good. What Joshua is getting at here is that for a lot of us, following the Lord, following Jesus, is like picking up a brand new hobby of all the bells and whistles. It's really nice in the beginning. Look at the shiny new community I have. Ooh, I really like their singing. That nothing but the blood, was, it was good. I like the way they think about justice, or I really love the way they think about these kinds of issues. But I really want to be able to check in and out as I desire, as I want to. I'll, I'll kind of pick and choose the parts of it I want and say no to the things I won't. And what Joshua was saying is if you're going to treat your relationship to the Lord this way, then you are inviting his jealousy. You're inviting his wrath. This is not a new hobby. This is akin to marriage. You are committing yourself and binding yourself to God for life. And so that means you're committed when it's easy and when it's hard. You're committed when, the thi- when things are going really well and when things are going not so well. Joshua is saying, be careful about making this commitment because if you start thinking there are greener pastures on the other side, thinking that maybe I could let go of some of these, I don't really like these parts of the relationship as much, then you're inviting God's right jealousy, his desire that you would be committed fully and completely 
to him. This is what sets God apart from the other gods who might exert jealousy over themselves or for vanity's sake. God's jealousy is found in the second commandment. His desire that we would not worship any other gods but him. Not make any other images that we would worship only him. One author, Butler, notes that God loves his people so much that he wants their undivided love in return, that he will not share them with any other God or any other idol or any other person in your life. He will not share that love. He wants all of you. And we've heard this all throughout the book of Joshua. Choose God. Do it wholly. Do it completely. Follow Jesus and don't turn back. There's also, as we move past the stipulations, a deposit, a, a written record. It's in verse 26 as they write these things in the book of law. And so this preserves the covenant. Verse 26 reads, Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God. This, in a way, is their, their contract. It's proof of their relationship and everything it involves in their renewal. And then we have witnesses in verse 22 and verse 27 who provide proof that this is happening. The commitment has been made. Again, normally in the ancient Near East, the gods would be called as witnesses between two parties as the standard. However, since Yahweh was God alone, and the entire point is that there are no other gods, these gods cannot be invoked. Rather, the people would be the witness to their promise. They would hold each other accountable in the same way we're called to hold each other accountable to the truth and the reality we all walk. That when we confess to love the Lord Jesus, we are then also responsible to watch each other, not in a sort of patrolling way, but in a way that as we bear each other's burdens and see each other walk astray in a moment or uh, in a direction that we know is ungodly, to lovingly call one another back to the cross, to call one another back to Christ, and to remind each other of what the gospel has done in our life. And so Joshua is calling the people to do that same thing, to be witnesses so that you can hold each other accountable to what we have promised to commit ourselves to. And also, a really big rock. Verse 27, Joshua erects a big rock that would be witness, a witness to what they have promised that day. That this is a monument, a reminder that we have committed ourselves to the Lord. And lastly, curses and blessings. This is implicit all throughout chapters 23 and 24, but we also see it in verse 19 and 20. That again, following God is not something we can do halfway. To enjoy God's blessings would mean to receive his wrath if we were to prove ourselves unfaithful to him. Now, this covenant renewal may seem, again, like a lot of what we've already read and uh, looked at in the book of Joshua. But there's significance to Israel being reminded in this way in a recommitment to seriously love God and live in obedience. I think even for us, at times, we need to take a moment to just recommit ourselves to faithfulness to the Lord. To give a moment in prayer, and even as we respond afterwards, to take that time to recommit ourselves, to have seen the direction of our lives, 
To see, as Joshua says, put away those idols that you're still holding on to, to recognize that at times we are maybe reaching back and not even realizing it for the things we once held on to, for the, the ego, the pride, the people, the positions we're looking for. That at times we need to recommit ourselves to loving the Lord our God and him alone, to, to putting him where he belongs, to prioritizing our loves, to have a right order of loves, and to make sure God is who we are loving, not just in speech, but with our lives first. Because when we do that, everything else will be made right. That we would put everything that stands between us and Jesus away, keeping our eyes on him and only him, right? Being like the lame man who Jesus heals, who gets up and now is given his whole life to following Jesus, who's been healed both physically but also spiritually and now gives his life an eternal gratitude and joyful obedience to Jesus in his way. Now verses 29 to 33 officially end the book of Joshua. In these verses, we consider his legacy, but also some loose ends in the Pentateuch. Uh, verse 29, after these things, Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died, being 110 years old. And they buried him in his own inheritance at Timnath Sarah, which is in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain Gaash. Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua and had known all the work that the Lord did for Israel. If one descriptor could be put on your tombstone, a sentence, a phrase, what would it be? If Jesus, oh, were there answers? Did someone say something? What did you say? No? No answers? That's great. I thought I heard something else. That's okay. If Jesus were the one to write on your tombstone a sentence, a phrase, what would it say? Well, for Joshua, it would read, Joshua, son of Nun, the servant of the Lord. This is the first time that Joshua, the leader of Israel, is addressed with this title. The same that would be given to Israel's previous leader, Moses. Joshua would demonstrate throughout his life a commitment to what he preached. He was not perfect. We, we saw him stumble. But his life was marked in service to God. It's what we all strive for. That one day we, like Joshua would hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Finishing well is really important. It becomes an inspiration and an encouragement to everyone who's coming after us. And I say this to encourage our older saints, particularly, that in clinging to Jesus and following him closely, understand that we're watching and we're learning, that you're showing us in your own life, in real time, what it looks like for the Holy Spirit to be working in your life to bring out faithfulness to Jesus. And so we, we need you. Just as the people needed Joshua, all 110 years of him, to be faithful and to follow the Lord, we need you, who are not as old as Joshua, to demonstrate and show us what does it look like to walk with Jesus when it's 
easy, and it's easy for pride to set in and ego, and when it's hard, and it's easy to be bitter and to be joyless. You are an example to us of what it means to strive and run after him. Joshua's example of leadership fresh in the minds of the leaders underneath him and the people would help them to be faithful to the Lord. His faithfulness would also allow loose ends to be cared for. Look at verse 32. As for the bones of Joseph, which the people of Israel brought up from Egypt, they buried them at Shechem in the peace of the land that Jacob bought from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem, for a hundred pieces of money. It became an inheritance of the descendants of Joseph. The burial of Joseph's bones really bring the book of Joshua to a, a nice, fitting close. Joseph's final wish uh, in Genesis 15:25 and Exodus 13:19. I'll, I'll read it real quick. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, "God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones with you from here." So this promise to bury Joseph's bones in the inheritance of Joseph would be completed. Another promise kept. And with this, all three aspects of God's promise to the patriarchs are at least in part fulfilled. Israel has become a great nation. Israel stands in blessed relationship with the Lord. And Israel has a home and has a land of its own. Joshua's ending, it feels complete. They have victory, they have land, the people have rest. God has kept his promises, the tribes have received their inheritance, everyone lived happily ever after. Except, most of us know, Joshua's not the last book of the Bible. It's far from the last book of the Bible. And even as we read read through Joshua, we already saw inklings of things that might pop their ugly heads later in the life of Israel, places where they had not given themselves completely to God. Hebrews 4, 8 uh, through 10 reads, For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Joshua had led the people to the promised land into rest, but not true eternal rest. Rest from sin, rest from works that prove our righteousness to God. Joshua could only bring a temporary rest to his people in part because his example and his faithfulness wasn't enough to keep them. There arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtoreth. You guys know where that's from? That's Judges chapter 2. Oh, look at you. Wow. 
May we all demonstrate commitment to memorization or reading TV screens <laughs> like Vaughn. Not even a chapter and a half later, Israel is already ruining it. They've been given rest. They've been given fruitfulness and riches. And a generation goes, and they go with it. They follow quickly and begin to worship false idols. And so what we thought would be a nicely wrapped story quickly takes a sad turn as the people forget their love and their commitment to God and God alone. And so instead of continuing generations on to enjoy the rest that God provides, they would deal with his wrath. Because the sin, the rebellion in their hearts that would call them to reject God and his ways had not actually been dealt with. The sin in their hearts that rotted their minds as it does ours had convinced them that they don't need God, that they could have something just as sweet, just as wonderful in the gods of other peoples. In Judges, we see the people fail because in Joshua's death, life cannot be found. In Joshua's death, though it leaves a legacy, a strong one, though it holds influence, in his death there is no power to save. As we finish Joshua, what I hope we see is that though Joshua was a strong and courageous leader, though Joshua was important in the life of Israel, Joshua cannot save Israel or us. He cannot give us the power to choose God. It is only in Christ's death that forgiveness can be found. It is only in Jesus' resurrection that the power over sin can be grasped and experienced. What we learn in the book of Joshua is that Jesus is the better, the truer Joshua. This is what Hebrews 4, 8 through 10 is telling us, that in and through Jesus, we can experience true eternal rest. What Joshua could not lead us to, Christ will lead us to. That in Christ, we don't need to prove our righteousness because he has proven his righteousness. Because he has provided his righteousness through his death so that we can face God and enjoy the rest that he provides through his son. Joshua is a story of the Lord giving land, but it's also a story about rest, finding it. Israel wandered what must have felt like aimlessly for 40 years, wondering when will we get home. What they didn't realize is that even in crossing the Jordan River into the Promised Land, they had not actually truly found their eternal home. It was just a foretaste, a shadow of what will come of what is to come. At its conclusion, there is experienced a partial rest, but it's delicate. And as we see in the rest of the Old Testament, it's easily taken away. And even for us, we can experience rest through Christ. But in this life, we realize that it is not what it will be in the future. 
But for some of us, some of us, we need to know and experience this for the first time. That we need to know the rest that God provides through his son. That we've heard of it, we've maybe tasted of it, but we haven't grasped it. For others of us, we need to be reminded that though it's not what it will be, we get to partially experience the rest that God provides through Jesus right now. That if you're running on fumes, if you're burnt out, if you're weighed down, if you are tired, there is rest. And I don't just mean physically, there is rest in Christ, a kind of rest that exceeds what we feel physically. A spiritual peace, a spiritual strength that we are invited in, in and through Jesus. Not just to go there, but to stay there. That's what we see in chapters 23 and 24, that what brings us to God, our faithfulness to him, keeps us there. And in staying there, we get to enjoy the rest that he provides. And so I want to encourage us as a church that as you read Joshua on your own, as you, as you think of it, the, the call, I think, for all of us is to choose God, to choose Jesus, and in choosing Jesus, enjoy what he so generously gives us in salvation, in power over sin, and in rest. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for uh, the book of Joshua. We thank you for its message, for its call, reminder that it is not about Ultimately, who is leading? Who's in front? Because you're in front. Because you're leading. Because you are making a way for your people and providing for us in every way we so desperately need. And so God, help us to know that and to live like that's true. That in you we have all that we need. That what brought us here was the faithfulness of Jesus, not our own. What brought us here was the righteousness of Christ, not our own. And so what will keep us here close to you, Father, is that continual faithfulness and righteousness that Christ has displayed and shown. And if we would be a people who would cling to that, who would hold on to you, Christ, we will forever enjoy the rest that you give us. What Israel got to partially experience for a generation, we get to experience forever through your son. Help us to hold on to that because it is good. It is what we need. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen.